your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on International Business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. It's the Culture Matters Podcast number 56. Today's guest is Alfredo Behrens, and Alfredo Behrens strongly believes in drawing management lessons from indigenous organizations to increase the efficacy of teamwork. He offers a Brazilian carnival parade training module to this effect. Alfredo holds a PhD degree award by the University of Cambridge. He already lectured at Princeton University and London Business School. He currently lectures with Harvard Business School Publishing and FIA Business Schools in Sao Paulo. Alfredo also collaborates with environments such as the Harvard Business Review and the Financial Times. And yes, you've heard it well. Indeed, the title of this uh, of this podcast is How Salsa Can Create a Culture. It's by Alfredo Behrens. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, Alfredo, because I think it's morning where you are right uh, right now, isn't it? Late morning, but it is morning. Thank you, Chris. I hope you're Late morning. Yes, it's one of the, um, uh, it's it's a bit of an awkward experience for myself because normally when I do an interview, it's only audio and I use Skype. And this time you forced me, quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes because when you're listening to this, it's only audio. Um, and you forced me to use this this tool called Zoom. So I've learned something new, but it also involves video. So for the first time, I'm actually recording a podcast, including video. Well, you look uh, good. You look good. Not, not too much. Thank you. And, I, and and come to think of it, you know, I didn't even dress for the occasion. So I'm just, I'm wearing, I have a home day, uh, a home office day. So I'm just wearing some casual clothes and all. So I hope you're, you're okay with that. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right. Well, first off question, tell us a little bit about your yourself, who you are, where you come from, where you currently are when we're recording this, and a bit of your cultural frame of reference if you want. Ah, it's a long life to be able to put in a nutshell, Chris, but I'll try. Okay, we have time, it's oh, all right. Uruguay, almost. I'll make some coffee. You were born in Uruguay, okay. Yes, uh, almost 65 years ago. Okay. Uh, my father was an Anglophile, so he placed me in uh, the British school of Montevideo, and that's where I stayed for about 13 years of my life. Mm-hmm. But that left an imprint, and when I moved to Brazil and to study economics, I wanted to study further, and of course I chose Britain. University of Cambridge was kind enough to accept me, and then to grant me the PhD degree, hmm. which was at the time in economics. But it gave me it gave me a broad perspective about problems, issues, and whatever. So I remained an economist for the better part of my professional life. Mm-hmm. I lectured on these matters at Princeton University, at Florida State University when I lived in Panama. Mm-hmm. I then moved to the World Bank, and that was a major experience, and this is the one that I want to tell you about in this story. Yes, please, tell us a story. For the World Bank, I, I led the training of the people that would take the government uh, with Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. They were very resilient people, very perseverant, bright as anybody is, uh, but they lacked the knowledge about how to manage an economy. They did not have that experience, yep. not allowed to acquire it at the time. Mm-hmm. Right? 
So after that experience in the World Bank, I became a professor. <laughs> I came back to being a teacher. And this okay. right now, I am a professor of business. Uh-huh. Uh, but that experience that I want to tell you about, it has to do with leadership. Mm-hmm. And, and the issues of many people pulling different strings, trying to divert your attention on many issues. Mm-hmm. I knew that my focus was to prepare the people to take over. But I could not do it on my own. It's a large country. Yeah, and, of course. Uh, there were lots of little divisions amongst the people of color there, the blacks, as I would call them here in Brazil. In fact. That's, yeah. that's the word we use. And though they were one in terms of the purpose of taking the government, many groups there had different ideas of how to do it. Mm-hmm. So through local academics, the black and white, uh, we structured a system to teach basically macroeconomics, but other issues as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did this where one would start, uh, with the African National Congress. Mm-hmm. It's as an Indian entrepreneur told me, when I asked him, why did you set up your business in Sao Paulo? And he told me, well, because that is where the plane lands. Let's <laughs> see, <laughs> well, of economics, but basically it boils down. Very logical. The African National Congress was the largest party there, and the one which was uh, more amenable to dealing with people from the West, and particularly, excuse me, please. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a phone ringing, by the way, and... Alfredo is uh, is busy trying to find his phone. Yes. Uh, and it, the African National Congress was, say, the most globalized of, of these parties in operation. Yeah. So the one that was asked by Nelson Mandela uh, to provide the train. Now, working through other people means that you have to have a lot of diplomacy, particularly when you're not that trustworthy because you come from the World Bank. Yeah. So... Uh, the academics that I was relying on the teaching through uh, came to Washington and chose a World Bank official to do mm-hmm. some of the lecturing while uh, the course was going on. It mm-hmm. turns out that this official, uh, at the last minute, could not turn up in South Africa. And so the South African colleagues asked, uh, sent a fax to the World Bank when I was not there, I was traveling somewhere else. They sent a fax asking for another economist, but make it a, non-wh- a non-white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting when that happens to you. Yeah, that's the problem, you see, because everybody had uh, believed that this man that had been chosen to speak for the World Bank in South Africa had been mm-hmm. chosen for his professional knowledge. Uh, and now it turns out that actually uh, what they were wanting was somebody that was more or less <laughs> akin to what they wanted to hear, but also that this person was a non-white. So the, the messages within the World Bank started circulating from colleagues all over the bank, you know, 6,000 employees mm-hmm. sending messages. Well, I've got a yellow one for you. But <laughs> 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 well, I've got one brownish one. Is that okay? No, it was so ridiculous that I had to call my colleague when I realized this, I went back, back to Washington. There was no email at the time. I'm talking yeah. 1992, 93. Uh-huh. So I had to call back my colleague and tell him, listen, <laughs> never write a fax like that to the world. It may be okay in South Africa, but it's a no-no anywhere else in the world, just about. Yeah. And he had not realized this. See, uh, and this is something which is, which is worrisome. Uh, 
It's not the yeah. only story that I have of that time. The, what, the, the, how in the end, Alfredo, did you solve this? How, how, how did it turn out? Did you go, what, what happened? Well, there wasn't much time, so I chose a Brazilian macroeconomist, uh, which, mm -hmm. you know, Brazilians don't look all that Caucasian, but, you know, <laughs> he is white to Brazilians for sure, right? He may look like an Italian to South Africans. Uh-huh. This guy was a PhD by Harvard, and he had been uh, almost a minister of macroeconomics in Brazil. So he knew his job, and he knew what he needed to tell the South Africans. I mean, watch out, because if you ask too much from a small economy, you'll have inflation. Yeah. The problem was solved. The guy was so well received that though they had initially given him only 15 minutes to speak, which was a bit of an insult to the guy, mm -hmm. I told him, well, listen, I mean, that's how matters are here now. Earn their trust, and that time will be expanded. So just speak as long as you can until you're interrupted. <laughs> now, he did so well that, of course, those five, 15 minutes turned into two hours, and then he was asked to speak to the president uh -huh. of the Central Bank, to Parliament, and else. It was a proper choice. This was a good man, well-trained, uh, very experienced, and with uh -huh. art on the right side. That's all you needed. Right? Yeah. The color of the skin was secondary, but... Not at the time. No, no. It's it's interesting. It's um, it's a, it's a very nice story. So thank you for for actually sharing this with um, with us. It's and where are you currently? Uh, where where am I looking at now? Based in São Paulo, I teach. Oh, okay. Um, full-time yeah. professor at least until okay. March when I probably retire. Yeah. Reach the retiring age, but I continue teaching, if not at the same place somewhere else, and I have a nice consulting business. Uh, called uh, Winvest and Brainfeeder, the banner that you see behind me, is uh -huh. one of the divisions of it. Uh, essentially, I teach economics, uh, sorry, business management, but with a world perspective. Okay, fair enough. And you, you, for that, for that teaching, your teaching methods tend to be somewhat unorthodox. It's from, at least from what I've sort of been able to, to, to gather around the, the, the web, you don't seem to stand in front of a, of a classroom with a whiteboard or a chalkboard and, you know, say, well, chapter one talks about this, chapter two talks about that. Tell us what you do, because that's quite interesting. And, and why that works. Why that works. Uh, Chris, uh, I wish more people would be doing that because classes would be <laughs> more attractive. Mm -hmm. But you see, in, in Europe and in the US, when people talk about cross-cultural matters, they mm -hmm. tend to rely too much on statistics. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty hard to capture the whole idea of the culture of a nation through numbers. It's, it's okay to me. It's Fair okay enough. Yeah. Reasons, right? But it, it, a lot is left out. Yeah. So I rely on the cultural expressions of a people. Mm -hmm. So I rely on their literature, on their cinema, until, for example, when a book has made it to be a compulsory reading on the agenda of a country, it means that mm -hmm. that book speaks to the heart of the people. Mm -hmm. Its characters represent something which are relevant for them. And so I, I, I analyze the characters of those books and try to translate this into management attitudes. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I, reading the Brazilian literature, I realized that there is a lot of evasion attitudes, evasive attitudes, mm -hmm. which are pretty poor for feedback. <laughs> yeah, true. And managing people to correct their attitudes because they really skirt the things out. Yeah. 
Now, I went back to see why would it be that Brazilians would have this uh, attitude in them? Why is it that Brazilians are so different from people that speak Spanish in Latin America? If, after all, these people came from the same peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula, at the same time looking for the same thing, uh, you know, way to Asia, and after the same history, you know, the expulsion of Muslim people and the Jews with them, so mm -hmm. why was it that people that were, had so much in common at the time they left the Iberian Peninsula would be so different? And? Uh, and I have tracked that to the history of the trading with Asia. Okay. The Portuguese t took the southern route along uh, Africa, while the Spanish took the western route the Portuguese found their way to Asia, but the Spanish did not. Mm -hmm. In the process, the Portuguese became merchants, and merchants mm -hmm. seek win-win solutions. It has to be yeah. you and good for me, otherwise there's no trade after you come the second. Yeah, yeah. Then, then you become, yeah, fair enough. The Spanish remained aristocratic because they didn't have the benefit of this transformation. Mm -hmm. But they continued to seek winner-takes-all solutions. Mm -hmm. This makes them extremely abrasive to Brazilians, and this is why communications between the Spanish-speaking and the Portuguese people have always been lacking. Mm. Okay, and 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 what is what is the Brazilian Carnival Parade have to do with anything here? <laughs> ah, well, that is also uh, crucial. <laughs> well, to Brazilians, I guess it is. But why? What? What does it have to do with your teachings? Well, your uh, yes, it's it's important. Mm -hmm. Management was developed mostly in the U.S. Some Russian input, some British input, some French, but essentially it's an American thing, right? Yes, true. Uh, because America became so predominant in world economics, then its business schools became extremely important. And mm -hmm. people believed that, you know, we should be teaching here what they teach there. Yeah. But essentially management, having been developed observing Americans, is not that adequate for Brazilians, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can. It's not. A, it's not a template you can use just like that. Not, not without adaptation. It seems something exactly. that useful others are not. Mm -hmm. but not but, yeah. You know, there's there's lack of sophistication at business schools, so you just <laughs> push through the same thing with yeah. the same textbooks, even right? Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, same happened here as well. Yeah. So what what happens is that uh, Brazilians, being far more group oriented than Americans are. Mm -hmm. They tend longer to build the trust necessary to work in teams. Yeah. So while the American management emphasizing recruiting through competencies, say, mm -hmm. develop a job description, call for the CVs in, look at the CVs, and mm -hmm. then collect the people and throw them in to work together, it doesn't work as well in Brazil. Because if people take longer to trust the other, the newcomer, whatever much they may know, uh, will have a hard time tuning in and working as a team. Mm -hmm. So what the Samba schools do is completely different. Mm -hmm. they, they have a goal, like a corporation does. You know, um, and sorry to interrupt, we're talking here about Samba schools, right? That's the Samba, that's the dance we're talking about that here. That's the dance. Uh, yeah. Samba schools are like clubs, where obviously people train to dance, uh, but you know, dancing is only one of the things they do. They also mm -hmm. uh, provide community services, but they wouldn't exist if they did not compete towards a yearly parade called the Carnival Parade. Mm -hmm. At that parade, you have about two or three leagues in every major Brazilian city, and in each league, you have about 12 samba schools competing for the first place. Mm -hmm. 
So in order to win, they have to work for a year, mm-hmm. ever since the last parade. Yeah. They put together about 25 wings of people, five floats, and a percussion orchestra of about 400 people. Mm-hmm. They have to select a theme, uh, and a, a, a samba school uh, song, which is what they sing as they dance, and then parade in only five minutes. If they take longer than that, they will be penalized. And okay. when they are parading, they are being evaluated by about 10 items, like, for example, the adequacy of the costumes to the theme that is being sung, uh, the merge of the floats with the rest. Uh, does the story of the song come about in mm-hmm. the play itself? Is the percussion orchestra good or is it bad? Where mm-hmm. are the weaknesses? Where are the strengths? So those 10 items become the KPIs, the key performance indicators of a sample for the next parade. This is what we have to improve on. So they have a goal. They have, obviously, a budget restriction, which is quite stringent. Mm -hmm. They have to deliver in a year with people that they don't pay. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a good business model. (laughs) Now, this is fascinating. I mean, if you can get people to moonlight, because since they're not paid, they have to have other day jobs. And they come after work, many of them during the week, because those there is a core of about three to 500 people that work throughout the year, and the group increases as you come closer to Carnival. But those 300 people are the ones that make that thing work. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are, there are others, about 500 come up later, and then you know, lots of people join in for the parading. But they have to come on Sundays, every Sunday for about three months or four months just to train. Yeah, yeah. You know, the facilities are not great. Some of the training is out in the streets at night, even when it rains. And yet those people, when they work at corporations, they may arrive late, check out early, and ask for sick leave when they're not sick. So obviously management at corporations is missing something that the Samba School has. Mm. So coming back to the way that they recruit. Yes. It has to be fun, but also what the summer school provides is a nurturing environment that replicates something like a family, like a club. Yep. This is extremely important in countries which are urbanizing, like most developing countries are. So Brazil mm-hmm. urbanized uh, from the 70s on. Right Today we have 85% of the population which are urban. Now these people, when they came to the cities, the cities were already full, right? They had to find the footing somewhere and yep. it wasn't the best so it could have been the slopes of the mountains uh, places where it had become flooded and they had to change uh, addresses many times during the first or even second generation mm-hmm. so those effective uh, links that were so crucial when they were living in smaller communities were severed in succession several times so when they reached the Samba school, they find their nurturing environment, and actually the metaphor is a family. So the families take the little children there when they're about six years old, they let them loose in the square, they have fun, they dance, they eat, they play with their friends. Uh, the more mature adults, they speak to each other, but they don't jump ships. Mm-hmm. A person joins a Samba school and dies in it. Yeah. <laughs> Samba schools do not fire, and and they don't really select like a corporation does. They work with the people that they have. So instead of instead of say uh, developing a job description and going out to the market to see who fits that job first, that's not mm-hmm. the way to do it. 
they have a need and say, well, who can perform this best? Yeah. The people there know that they will have a function, no matter mm -hmm. what. Even when they are very old, because the, the old guard uh, has their best seats reserved in all occasions. They're really venerated. Even after death, you see votive candles all over the place, the pictures of the people. So this sends a very strong message to the younger ones that you can devote yourself to this organization. You can give them the best of yourself because you will never be thrown away in an mm -hmm. undignified way. Yeah. We're still part of the group. Race. So yeah. when the group is so important, you can't treat them as individuals. Now, if, if, if a North American, I mean, you're sort of our, our you, you try, I, I read you travel between the North and the South of, uh, of the Americas. Is, what, what would an American say when he would look at a management model that you've just described? Would he sort of question whether this would be effective or efficient? Well, if it were easy, there would be more of them adopting it. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is, uh, as usual, that you have a template and that works well for you. And then you should move abroad and try to apply the template on the people that are likely to be able to work with. Yeah. So they select people in developing countries that speak English, that are more globalized than the rest. And this is how they operate. Corporations operate. Now, the problem is that those people are out of tune with their culture. Yeah. And because they're too few, they're quite expensive. Okay. Is, is that, and that's, uh, I'm not trying to play devil, devil's advocate. I'm just making use of the opportunity that um, you are... There's a fool there that has let loose the, the alarm and it's not turning it off. So I sometimes cannot hear you. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, there's a bit of background noise here when it comes to um, uh, to your end, I think. And, and there is an alarm going off. And yeah, it's ridiculous. I'm not sure how strong it goes. Uh, it's going to go on the uh, the recording as well. Mike, let, let me try and, and finish uh, or, or repeat my question. Um, I'm not trying to play devil's advocate here. I'm just trying to make use of the situation that you are in Brazil and, um, and know the, the culture as well. Some years ago, there was a first talk of the BRIC countries, sometimes called the BRICS countries, um, expanded with South Africa. So Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, and sometimes South Africa was included with that. What happened to the B and what happened to the R in the, in the BRICS countries or the, and, and possibly the, the C as well and maybe the S in the end? What happened there? Is, are there cultural components there that, that actually play a role? Well, that's more of an economics question than a man. Don't get too technical on me, please, because I'm, I'm a psychologist and not, a, not an economist. Uh, okay. Well, there is a cultural problem in the sense that uh, Brazil was seen as a very fast-growing country only about 15 years ago. That was mm -hmm. the time of President Lula. Yeah. Now, President Lula was some sort of uh, Brazilian Kennedy, right? Coming out from nowhere, a Catholic, too young, coming to lead this massive country that had already serious problems during the Cold War. Well, yeah. I came from uh, obviously not the same background, but a very different one from Brazilians. And it was the first time that we had uh, a worker you know, mm -hmm. at the presidency of the country. Somebody who would actually roll up his sleeves as well. Yeah, there was a lot of positive expectations of mm -hmm. what would happen. But I think that the problem was that Lula believed in himself. 
<laughs> well, that's the starting point. I, mean, I think he's answered you well. I, I've got here now, that's it, right? Yeah. This is simply put, of course. But the man started dealing uh, with, with foreigners as if Brazil were already a developed country. So he offered Brazilians intermediation in the crisis between Iran and the U.S. Uh -huh. I mean, he was completely out of his face. It, he didn't succeed. He also uh -huh. asked for a permanent seat in the United Nations Security Council. And of course he didn't get it. No. Uh, he tried to interfere with the presidential succession of Honduras. And we mm -hmm. were left with the former president of Honduras sleeping in the couch of the Brazilian embassy for months and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So there was a lack of focus in his behavior that mm -hmm. led to a certain situation which favored Brazilian expansion of uh, corporations that came too close to President Lula and the government and started paying bribes to get concessions and tax credits on financing and subsidized loans that would expand these corporations abroad. Yep. Now, Brazil is a large country and it's not bribery that will turn it down. I mean, it's substantial as it is, I mean, mm -hmm. up to now, I think there's a $3 billion total of bribes that have been paid. Wow. Which is a lot, but this yes. is a large country, and so it's not that which brings the country down. But what does is frustration. Mm -hmm. right? And so what you see today in Brazil is a situation in which people were expecting a new Brazil, and really they woke up with the same old. Mm. And, uh, you know, waking up from a nightmare is not nice. Mm. So this is what Brazilians are going through now. They have a president that won the presidential election by a very small margin, who does not believe in the structure of reforms that need to be carried out. So she fired his, her first finance minister. Mm. That was what will happen with the second, which was one of the ones that were operating before. So essentially, uh, you have the, the, the feeling that you know, we are still muddling through. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's the only, not only uh, the only country that's doing poorly, as you say, in the BRICS, there are quite a few. Uh, perhaps only India now is doing well. Seems like it so far. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, we do, we, we do have our ups and downs, right? Now, the circumstances are different for each one of them. And, you know, BRICS was uh, an acronym built up in a rather obtuse way without the countries themselves having much in common. That's true. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Well, large populations, right? And, uh, you know, <laughs> relatively important. Young people in them, therefore, the future is there. Uh, but uh, for, besides from that, there's not that much in common. Hmm. But in terms of management, I'm looking at what they have in common, yes. Hmm. And it's that mostly they are collectivists. Yeah. Right? As, and so do you think Brazil, Russia, and China are collectivistic countries? Yes, they are collectivists. They, yep. they tend to hold on to their families for much longer than Northern Europeans would, or mm -hmm. Americans for sure. And this makes them a group-oriented. You know, you learn in the family the strings of how to behave with others. Yep. Right? Yep. And how to trust or not to trust. Mm -hmm. so the dealing with an out-group member is a bit unsavory, mm. uh, which means that we will find similar ways of organization in terms of management in Brazil, India, China, right? Mm -hmm. This is yeah. working on the concept of clans. Yeah. 
because this is the way that we organize the Samba school through, and it's the way that the Mumbai Dabawalas get organized as well. Mm-hmm. Right? And now, the yeah. Mumbai Dabawalas, uh, you know, they, they distribute about 200 tiffin boxes or meals cooked at home to yeah. them, usually husbands, because that's the way it works. They collect them at home in the morning, 10, 11 o'clock, and they deliver them by lunchtime, 30, 40 miles away, mm-hmm. after having crisscrossed in the handling about six times. Mm-hmm. Right? And they make no mistakes. They reckon for this. And how do they do it? How, why do these teams work like a clock, like a samba school? Mm-hmm. Well, it's that they recruit in the small villages around Pune, which is not Mumbai. Right? The people are teams before they work as teams. Yep. Uh, the four, the foreman, the Mukadam, goes up to them and selects the people that he knows he can trust. Yep. And they work the inner circle. Yep. Let the team down. Right? Yep. So that group orientation may give Brazil, India, and China, and perhaps South Africa as well, to some extent Russia, more in common than at first it had been seen. <laughs> See, when, when the term BRICS was developed, it was essentially, oh, they're big, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was not much more said about it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. They, they just had very fast expanding uh, economies. You're, you're one of the very few, um, I would say, professionals, because you are a professional, uh, typically in the field of leadership and management, that somehow, I, I, there must be more people, but you, you at least verbalize it, say what... You know, what is invented in, for instance, the United States is fine for the United States, but you can't just export it just like that and put it on as a template on a country like Brazil in your, in your case. What can, can companies in different cultures do to create their, their best, their most efficient um, uh, organizational culture? Mm. Well, they should look into their own people. Mm-hmm. The answers are there. How is it that they behave? How is it that they organize when they have not been influenced by Western traditions? Mm-hmm. So this is why I went to look into Samba School. This is why I, earlier, before that, I went to look into the popular revolutions of Latin America. There were quite a few of them, as you know, during the 19th century. But what was fascinating is what I couldn't figure out what makes those leaders so effective. How mm-hmm. did they manage so many people without paying for them? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was the promise of glory. Some of these organizations lasted for 10 years, like in Venezuela, uh, in nine years in Uruguay. So, you see, this is much longer than many of the corporations last in these countries. Mm. So, what I went to find out was what was it that these guys did and how they do it to hold so many people together and move them across uh, regions, uh, you know, regions that they were unfamiliar with, because these columns would start in one place and advance to others, like if mm-hmm. they were corporations expanding. So I went to look into those to find out those roots of mm-hmm. culture, what it means to be a leader in our countries, uh, what it means to pay people, what is it that they expect from the leader. Mm-hmm. So I think that most of the questions that you would want answers for are readily available only that the people don't look for them there, particularly business management schools. They're quite dumb, you see. Yeah, this, yeah this, they tend to repeat what's been said already, you know. Just, yeah. they're, not known, they're not known for their flair. You know? 
yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> Only a few are possibly, maybe, yeah. Well, the, the problem is, you know, too focused on results, and really, the results are what they are. It's the result, the results of something, right? Yeah, of course, and, and I always, yes, yes, yes. And if they're running a business, I mean, running a school is something different than running a business, I guess. Yes. Yeah, true, good point there. Um, I have a couple of, of uh, questions and then heading towards the end because uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. It's, mm-hmm. it's a question I've been asking um, a lot of the guests of this, uh, this, of the Culture Matters podcast is why is it, in your opinion, that many organizations or people in organizations tend to brush over culture so fast? Uh, you know, a fish only knows about dampness or humidity once you take him out of the Fair enough. Query, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, that ability of living in another culture is restricted to very few people. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's understandable that they have those difficulties. Even those that have traveled usually confine themselves to ghettos, right? Of expatriates, mm-hmm. for example. Yep. And they don't really get into touch with uh, what is relevant. So I think that they brush it off because they have no clue. <laughs> okay, I'd appreciate that. It's, it's, um, recently, I got a, a request from a multi-cult, multinational organization if I could be part of um, their... They actually said, I think they used the word entertaining act, um, and then talk about culture along the way as well. So I'd be at the end of a program, and they wanted something light, something, you know, and then they they thought that culture would be a good topic to to finalize a a get-together of an international organization. And of course, I mean, I think it's, it's a nice idea, but it's not... That's that's what I said. It's not a fun topic per, per se. It's not a drastic. I mean, it's not a sad topic for sure. But it's it's more. I think by far more a serious topic than a fun topic. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I I think you're right. But I think that we should behave like guerrilla people and take whatever opportunities out there to put our message through. Guerrilla culture. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Now let, let us let us think. For example, uh, I, I've teamed up with. Uh, Bateria Master. Bateria is the percussion orchestra of a samba school. Now, he knows how to get 400 people together to train through a year without paying for them. Yeah. And he knows how to build a team, and he's got mm-hmm. a lot of charisma. I've got the knowledge, the understanding of what it means for a corporation. So we've teamed up together and say, well, let's offer a training session to mm-hmm. corporations illustrating through the samba school percussion orchestra. Right, And you will make them play, you will make them train to play in the instruments, and I will translate this to the corporate uh, echelon of the company. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've done it once uh, already, and I hope to be invited abroad to do it again. It's lots of fun, as you would imagine, right? Of course. There are nice people dancing, the music is on, it's very lively. But at the same time, we can give it a message through it. Yeah. So if, you know... Life is tough already, and if people need some fun, well, give it to them. But, you know, there are more constructive ways of giving them fun than just uh, taking clothes off, right? Sure, 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 sure. So, essentially, I think it can be done, and I would encourage you to do it, because whatever whatever angle you can do is always useful. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. So whatever, how the more people you get in front of of yourself, if you want to get the message out, the more you can spread the word like that. Some people will, will get one hundred percent of your message. Others will yeah. do only ten percent. But you know, it's it's better than nothing. Fair enough. Okay. We make okay. a better world through that. So if you want, you can hire me and my team and. And, and I'll, think, I'll think about it. All right. That's almost enough or I can't refuse. Um, Alfredo, I have two more questions for you. One is a very simple one uh, and the other one is slightly more difficult. Uh, not really difficult. If you would, um, no, can you give us three tips? Can you give us in the audience three tips to become more culturally competent? First of all is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. How much do you already know about yourself and how you relate to others? Then I would encourage you to see foreign films. Foreign it's, films, okay. It's a cheap way of understanding how people feel. Uh-huh. That's an interesting one. Yes. Watch, for example, it's, it's free. It's on Netflix. Go and watch The Americans. There's a Russian couple there that have to bring their children in America as if they were Americans because that is part of their camouflage, mm-hmm. right? The woman still remains very strong tied to their Russian roots. The man less so, and the children have lost their Russian roots almost entirely. Now, that dynamic is very telling. Reading how is it that these characters behave and, uh, and reflect towards different attitudes and different bits of information is in itself a great lesson. So I think that if, if I were to ask what people, how do you want to become more uh, globally minded in a cheap way, in an easy way, is just watch foreign <laughs> films, right? Okay, nice. Or, or read their literature. It's cheap, right? And it's fun. True. <laughs> it's what would be the third one? The third one would be, of course, the most expensive one, which is to travel yourself and spend some time. It doesn't need to go to every country of the world, but it helps to go to at least one. Yep. And a different one from yours. Now, not as a part of uh, a package, tourist package. Yes, is, not a two-week holiday, no. I mean, and it helps if the people are young, right? Yep. There's a greater payoff throughout their lives. That's true. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. These are three nice tips. Self-awareness. How well do you relate to or how know how you relate to others? See foreign films. As you men- that's what you mentioned. And travel. And do spend some time when you're actually travel- traveling. And don't consider that being a packaged holidays when you only see the beach and the all-inclusive tours and stuff like that. Although they're not bad, it just doesn't help you much in terms of cultural. And perhaps even you're traveling with nationals of the same nationality. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Then you reign your own clan if you want. Okay, last question, Alfredo, if I may. How can people get in touch with you after listening to this interview? Well, I have a, I have a site, alfredoberens.com. Uh-huh. That is Alfredo, like Alfred with a no, and then B-E-H-R-E-N-S. I think it's written behind in my banner there. Yes, it is written behind you. Okay. On the other hand, if people are listening to the uh, audio version only, then they can't really well, see what's There is something which is quite easy. It's my email. It's yeah. 0800 Alfredo. Say that one more time, please. 0800 Alfredo, in numbers, uh-huh. at gmail.com. Well, you see, my last name is rather complicated in these latitudes. So I removed it from my email to make the life easier of people that want to reach me. Zero eight with Alfredo at gmail.com. 
Okay, fantastic. Can I thank you very much for taking the time and uh, I'm uh, for doing the interview, of course, as well. And I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. For sure, for sure. And if if the quality of the sound is not what you would like because of all the interference that we've had, we can do this again at any time, right? I think it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Remember, if a corporation comes up to you with an offer of a talk about culture while the people are having champagne, do it. Sure. <laughs> Definitely will. You've got me convinced well, here. Thanks. You can hire our team here and we'll give you the fun of you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I know where to find you. Thank you so much. Take care. I love you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, dear. Alfredo, thanks for sharing the insights um, and not becoming too technical when it comes to the economical questions that I uh, asked towards the end of this interview. Thanks again for listening to the Culture Matters podcast. If you like any of the podcasts, and hopefully you do, then you can let me know by sending me a mail or you can respond or reply to the uh, the blog post at culturematters.com uh, or you could leave a review, of course, at iTunes. All right, thanks if any of that, if you would do any of that. And I'll be back in two weeks' time with another podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.